Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Just a few quick notes before we start today's show. First off, it's brought to you ad-free. Now, of course, nobody likes ads, but they do help us to pay the bills. And so when we don't have ads, we have to rely a little bit more on contributions from listeners like you. So if you haven't con- contributed, that can't be a word, contributed, how about that? And you might be interested in doing so, that would be really great and very much appreciated. And to do that, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. Second thing, you'll notice there's a, a little bit of an audio artifact throughout this interview. I did my best to minimize it as much as possible, but it's, it is still there just a little bit. Just wanted to let you know ahead of time. And finally, if you haven't heard already, I am starting a blog, which will feature oh, m- mainly my research, my newest research interest, which is all, all things related to food politics, as well as maybe some non-food politics related things, maybe even some non-politics related things from time to time. We'll kind of see how that goes. If you're interested in checking that out, go to politicsguys.com slash Mike. And now on to today's show. Longtime listeners might recall that just over a year ago, I invited my friend Joe on the show. Now, Joe was and still is a Trump supporter. And back in October of 2016, it seemed almost inconceivable to many on the left, and that includes me, that Donald Trump could be elected president, especially in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape. Now, at the time, I, I thought it would be useful to get a take on what would surely be a, a fluke phenomena ending in a disastrous Republican defeat from a smart, well-read, highly educated person like my friend Joe. Someone who was more than just an anti-Hillary Trump supporter, but who actually had positive reasons for supporting Donald Trump. Now, one year later, to, to my surprise and, you know, my great dismay, Donald Trump is president of the United States. And I thought it would be good to check back with my friend Joe to get his thoughts on the Trump presidency so far. Now, as I mentioned the first time I had Joe on, my purpose here isn't to attack him or President Trump, but rather to try to better understand a worldview that differs considerably from mine and that of many politics guys listeners, I'm sure. Um, It's also a worldview I think is still very underrepresented in the traditional news media. So with that, we'll get right to it. Joe, welcome back to the show. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, Michael. Well, the pleasure is going to be mostly mine. I don't think your listeners so much. Okay, well, we'll we'll see. Um, All right, well, let's just get right to it. You know, a few days ago, I listened to our first talk, and there's one thing I regret not doing, and that was starting off by asking you to briefly kind of summarize your ideology since, you know, anyone's evaluation of Donald Trump or really any politician is necessarily going to depend on that. And so without our getting too deep into the weeds here, how would you characterize yourself politically? You had kind of given me a general um, uh, tenor of the interview. And so I would say for the first two parts of it, there's kind of a before and after as a, kind of a prologue. If you had asked me before the fall of 2015, I would have said that I'm a pragmatic, libertarian, conservative Republican. You know, pragmatic in that Rome's not built in a day, and it took from 32 to 64 for the Democratic agenda to be fully realized, and it took another, say, 34 years after the defeat of McGovern to uh, to see the progressive movement, you know, engulf the Democratic Party. So it's about 74 years. My point being that. 
anybody who's sitting there going, but, 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 and we need to, like, if you start our clock in 1980 with Reagan, you should expect to see our Nancy Pelosi, what, about 2054? And if you start it in 94, well, 2068. I'm not going to be alive to see this. So, pragmatic. Rome's not building a day. I'm libertarian. I don't believe that the government or you know what's best for me. And I'm very suspicious of anyone who tries to improve me, irrespective of whether I wish to be improved or not. And then, you know, I'm conservative. I like the founders. I have a darkish view of human nature. And I'll just flat admit that, for me, the best basis for society is something that's broadly Judeo-Christian. And if you're going to adopt the libertarian feel-good, do it, or the, I think the excessive rationality of, of, of modern liberalism or neoliberalism or libertarianism or technocracy or the irrationalism of multiculturalism, you're going to end up in a very, very unlivable society very quickly. So, yeah, I am conservative. And I was a Republican because that seemed to be the best fit for me. Did it fit perfectly? No but it fit better than the other alternative. Now today, I'm an apostate conservative. I was cast out in the great rectification of 2015. And uh, so, uh, you know, I I will say, I find that marvelously freeing. I don't have any of these, I don't have to participate in these arcane, tedious, theological debates between paleo-conservatives and fiscal conservatives and defense conservatives and, and cultural conservatives, which, you know, as I said in the, in the uh, 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 Flight 93 election uh, piece that, I, you know, that you've read, you know, it, these are becoming very arcane. Or theolo- to me, they are, as you know, a friend of mine once said, you know, it, 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 they, they border on the debates between the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the debates of wizened old men concerning the number and true nature of Christ's being. So, you know, I, I, so if you're going to say, hey, what about this thread of, of conservative thought? I'm going to have to say, well, that's what they think. It's not necessarily what I think anymore. Okay. And I think that that should give listeners kind of a sense of where you're coming from or, or when we get into some of these other things now. And, you know, a, a few, I want to start with, I guess, the sort of more substantive questions now that we have the background out of the way that a few days after the election, I don't know if you remember, but I, I was, we were talking and, and I was telling you just how deeply upset a lot of people close to me were. And, you know, some, some of them even, you know, even crying. And, and you said something in response that really, really stuck with me. You said, tell them it's only politics. Now, now I know what you meant. At least I think I know what you meant by that. But I was hoping you could explain it to, to listeners because I think it really gets at something important here. Well, and again, and it's a before and after. If you would ask me that, say, any time up to about January of 16, I would have given you a more conciliatory response. But since that time, we've had Antifa and the resistance and the crazy woman march in D.C. So I'm not going to be nearly so conciliatory. Now, I can give you my answer about why, you know, what I mean by it's only politics. And, you know, I'm just going to say, um, I've, and, you know, I, I work in a firm that deals in politics, but I don't run campaigns. I am not a candidate for anything. So when I put this, when I say this, you have to put them in quotes. I've won and lost any number of campaigns in my life. 
all right? I went to bed both in November of 2015 and 2016 knowing that I had voted for the loser, only to wake up the next morning and to be, huzzah, we won, and convincingly so, amazing. So, you know, I was happy. I went to bed that night. I slept soundly, didn't have any tears, no thrashing about, no nightmares. And because I know my life's going to go on irrespective of the outcome of either a gubernatorial or a presidential election. Look, I deal cards for some religious eleemosynary organizations. I attend sporadically my, you know, my spiritual community services. I have this beautiful, talented, loving partner. And I've got more Norman Friedman books to get through on naval combat technology and some statistical surveys and summaries of U.S. Army combat operations to get through. So, yeah, I do politics about 40 or 50 hours a week, but it's only one part of my life. And I put that in, you know, in that perspective, that if she had won the election, I'd be unhappy. My life would continue. Right. Now, I... I'm sorry. I say, yeah, you know, I, I that's you know obviously what I thought you meant by it, but and I think one one common response to that that I would expect some listeners to make would be, well, sure, as a white male you can say that sort of thing, but if you're a person of color, if you're a female, the picture is much different and much darker than that, and it's it's harder to say. Well, it's only politics. Well, okay. Not one of your African-American listeners knows anybody who was ever a slave. You walk down the street, and you're going to see more multiracial couples, more in, you know, multiracial children. Please tell me how. It's 1964 again. All right. Now, it might be a tough life for women if you're in Harvey Weinstein's company or Mark Halpern's company. But, you know, I guess from that is, is to say is to kind of grow up. Um, if I might, I mean, I kind of, my thought on why so many people on your team wept bitter tears is this. Politics is their religion. All righty, I have my religion, and we have, you know, Tikkun Olam, making the world a better place. It's me going out and trying to be a good person, me changing the world. You know, as Christ said, you know, a knock, you don't open the door. I move on. Not in this progressive politics. I knock. I give you a cease and desist order. By the way, we're going to court. I'm going to make you a better person. It's their politics, and their policies have become their religion. You know, as, as there was a little study out last month or so that said for many non-juring young adults, these protests and these marches, they provide a structure and a social milieu, and it's their Sunday school. It's their church service. It's where they meet their friends, and they, you know, they identify their selves and their values in this world, and it gives them a chance to, have, you know, to measure the value in this world. And it's how they redeem the lost souls or how they shun the irredeemably lost souls in an attempt to prevent further sinful contamination of the body politic. And government, unlike my spiritual community, community can compel me to be better, better as they defined it. And I just believe that the hope was that the transformation of America could continue apace, that the coalition of the ascendant 
and better people would continue to smite hip and thigh those bitter clingers. And Trump's victory shattered that. You know, the sinners won. As Yates says, mere anarchy loosed upon the world. Okay. Uh, you, know, you know, one of the things when we talked last year, and you mentioned time and time again, was that Donald Trump, he's a fighter, and that, and that this kind of bellicosity of, of Trump was a, really a kind of a refreshing change from a Republican elite that, in your words, uh, adopted the fetal position as its opening position. And, and pretty clearly, I'd say, if anyone doubted it, I don't know why they would, but in the last nine months, I think it's been clear that President Trump absolutely is a fighter. What I'm wondering is if you think he maybe has a tendency to go too far at times to pick too many fights that make it harder for him to make the sort of substantive policy changes he says that he'd like to make? Um, okay, I'm going to prologue with saying that I do appreciate these questions, and, um, and they give me a chance to you know, simply flay your narrative, which I assume is your goal. You're going to throw off some stuff by the net, and I get to spike it, so I thank you for it. So as to this question about fighting and policy, short answer, no. Yeah, I keep hearing, as usual, there's a strange new respect for oh, Bush 43. Oh, McCain. Mitt Romney. Yeah, you mean all the Republicans that lost. Yeah, strange new respect for the guys that lost, that didn't succeed. Oh, you know, so, you know, Trump fights. So, you know, Trump, you know, Corker says some dumb things. Trump punches him. Frederica Wilson lies. Trump fights. Bush 43, now he had the new tone. And what did we get? Bush lied. People died. Bush is a nice guy. And what did I see everywhere? Bush, somewhere a village in Texas is missing its idiot. Keeping your head down simply means you got punched harder. Now, Trump fighting eventually shows that these punchers to be knaves are fools. You know, and, 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 well, let, let me. What let I me... would also say is, as you're talking about these policy things, I'm going to give you this. You and Jay are not fooled by that smokescreen. So, if you want to focus on the Twitter fights, fine. How about DACA? It's ending. Clean Power Act. They were Clean Power Plan. It's ending. Withdrawing from Paris. Well, we're out. Decertifying the Iran deal. We're out. The end of the dear co- comrade. I mean, the dear colleague letter. We're defeating ISIS. We're ending the illegal, unconstitutional subsidies to insurance companies. There's lots of stuff happening, but if your listeners want to focus on Twitter fight, that's on them. Now I know that you and Jay are not, and that's smart on you. Right. I guess I guess I meant, and, and I see what you're saying, but I'm wondering if, like, for instance, you know, sort of seeming to pick fights with his own party for, for really, I don't know what gain exactly. And some would say, for instance, that. Perhaps part of the reason that uh, Senator McCain, or as you like to call him, Mr. Cranky Pants, uh, may have torpedoed one of uh, President Trump's main policy goals, repealing and replacing Obamacare, might have had something to do with the sort of fights that that President Trump engaged in with Senator McCain. And is there a point where you just say, you know, uh, maybe I'll hold my fire on this to achieve something greater, which is, I would maybe say, different from negotiating in the fetal position, or, or, or do you, would you disagree with that? I don't think Mr. Cranky Pants is, you know, if you follow his argument, there was no way he was ever going to vote for repeal. 
we have to involve the Democrats in this. Well, funny, since the Democrats are lining up more and more for single payer, since the Democrats would see repeal as a replacement of their signature accomplishment for the last eight years, and by the way, the Democrats didn't ask you about Obamacare, why would you ever involve Chuck Schumer? It was all a smokescreen. Mr. Cranky Pants and, and, and any number of other people I, I, I guess I would argue that if somebody's supposed to be the adult in the room, or if we will, then why isn't it incumbent on Mr. Cranky Pants or Jeff Blake or Bob Corker to say, well, that's just Trump. This is still a good idea. Tell me, who are the petulant children? By the way, who spent, what, seven years running ads talking about, I'm going to repeal Obamacare. Well, right up to the moment that it, the vote comes to it. And then I decide I'm going to be all mavericky. Yeah, John McCain. So I'm not, uh, I, I'm not, gonna, I'm not feeling John's, I'm not feeling John's pain. All right. Um, you know, experience was another issue that came up in our first talk. And, and in listening to it again, it seemed to me that you had at least maybe some Concerned, but but you also suggested that Donald Trump's decades of experience in in the world of New York development politics might make up for his never having held public office. And now the way I see it, at least, is to this point, President Trump has seemed well, kind of repeatedly flummoxed by the legislative process. I mean, even at times himself saying, you know, he didn't realize policy could be so hard or so so complex. And I'm so I'm wondering. How much would you say his inexperience has hurt him, if at all? And do you think he's doing a reasonably good job of learning from his presidential experience? Well, I'd say that your premise is wrong, but then you're just trying to be provocative. I'd say the people who are most flummoxed by the legislative process would be the GOP congresspersons and the U.S. Senate. Not Trump. Uh, sorry. Now, Trump has continued to advance on the executive order and the regulatory front. And all the things, well, all the things that, that Obama found that he had to do. So I don't know. If anybody was flummoxed, I guess it was the light bringer, too, of the light worker. But um, I thought, so I, I'd submit that, not so humbly, that the ball, you know, lies in the court of Ryan and McConnell. Though, before we, you know, people, all parties like to dump on Mitch McConnell. There's one area, if we get to it, that I think that Mitch McConnell deserves an outstanding grade or a complete F, depending on which side of the, the, which side of the divide you fall on. But, you know, what I like about Trump so far is, and I'm pragmatic, so for those who are going, well, he has to accomplish what he said he was going to do in 100 days. I'm like, well, I didn't expect that we would get through all this in 100 days. But then, you know, I don't expect to be alive to see my Nancy Pelosi. So what I see is that, you know, Trump's, uh, he's allowing, he's forcing rather the GOP to stop taking a vacation. Now, since 2006, they've had it easy. You know, in 06, Nancy Pelosi's speaker, and they get to wave their fist and talk about, you know, whatever, because it doesn't make any difference. They're in the minority. Then in 10, they got the House, and they got to talk big, but then they would look at the voters and go, well, Harry Reid in the Senate, what's she going to do? Then in 14, they take the Senate, but then their response is, oh, well, with Barack Obama in the, in the White House, what's she going to do? Please send us money to fight a Barack Obama's radical agenda. 
And so now they've got the House, the Senate, and the White House, and Trump's throwing it back on them. I mean, not only to do things, but you know, they've complained about presidential overreach. Okay, DACA is unconstitutional. You've said so yourself. So I'm ending it in six months. You guys fix it. Okay, you say that reimbursing insurers is unconstitutional. I'm ending it. You fix it. Decertifying the Iran deal, like your law allows me to, tell me what you're going to do. And Trump's forcing them to do more than say, you know, send us money. And I think it's exposing them for the riven and or hypocritical party. They are. And I mean, to be fair to the GOP, it is riven. I would argue, because I like alliteration, you know, Rockefeller, Reagan, Iran. And you could find, you know, devotees of all three in our party. So, you know, it is true. Threading that needle between, was it the Tuesday morning group and the Freedom Caucus and Mr. Cranky Pants, eh, you know, it may not be possible. But in part, it's also exposing them for being the hypocrites they are. Well, they've repealed and replaced Obamacare dozens of times until it mattered. So what I would argue that pragmatic is, and looking ahead a bit, is 2019. Who's not coming back? Bob Gorger, Jeff Flake, and there's going to be a whole lot more Republicans in the Senate. So yeah, if you view what we've done in, what is it, you know, in 17, you know, to be a failure, I'd simply say, when did the New Deal, when did the new New Deal start? 36. What? Well, you know what you're going to call FDR a failure for his first four years? Hmm. So, again, as a pragmatic person, I'm kind of looking ahead. And, yeah, I do kind of see the problems to be you know, in, you know, in, in Congress. I mean, and, and just I just opened up Drudge this morning. So, I mean, if I might, more failure theater is coming. The tax bill is secret. Oh, wow, that works so well with TPP. That's worked so well, you know, Paul Ryan. We'll keep it secret. We'll draft it in our office because we're cleverer than you lot. I, I, see this as, I see this as more the Freedom Caucus walks out and I just regular orders. Why can't we not use regular orders? Why? Because regular orders strips, you know, the smart people of their power. So to me, the committee system, regular orders, they actually do have a place and they work. But apparently, the very bright people, at least in the U.S. House, just can't accept that. And they constantly look stupid. I don't know what to say. Well, I, so. that, that's an issue in which you and, I, you and I don't necessarily agree on a lot, but that's an issue in which you and I, I think, are, are very much uh, in agreement on that. Um you know, another thing we, we touched on last time was lack of attention to detail, lack of interest in policy detail is sort of a, a Trump characteristic. And and at the time you you made a comparison or you, you suggested essentially that, you know, a president shouldn't be a micromanager like like a Jimmy Carter. And I certainly agree with that. But I'm wondering if you think that sometimes President Trump goes too far the other way and that if he were somewhat more versed in policy details, he could be a better advocate for things and not maybe seem so easily swayed by the last person he talks to, whether it's, you know, Mitch and Paul or Chuck and Nancy. Well, I think that's another excellent takeoff question. Let me just go back to, I'm pretty certain that a guy that's dealt in real estate and casino operations 
understands details. Bottom line, this deal of, well, he doesn't seem to grasp details, I think is a little story that people who don't like Trump tell themselves. So as to this, you know, last person spoken to, part of that, and you're, you know, more SJW listeners can snicker, I go with fake news. I remember from the day after at least to his inauguration that we weren't going to withdraw from the Paris Accords, and we weren't going to do this, and we weren't going to do that. See, you Trump pansies have been played by your fuchsia Fuhrer. Only none of that was true. So when they talk about, well, the last person he talked to, well, I don't think he's deviated that much from what he said he wanted to do. Now, what I do think when you know, people hear about, well, he seems to, yeah, I think a lot of that is negotiating. He's telling the GOP, although, I mean, I can't believe he actually believes this, but I think he is telling the GOP, I would like to see, say, a dreamer act. If Nancy and Chuck can give it to me with some of your votes, I'll take that. He's telling the GOP, and I think he's telling the Freedom Caucus, and I mean that may anger some of your more libertarian members, but my response to that is get 109 Freedom Caucus members and you get to call the shots in the House until or unless you don't have that much power. The Tuesday morning group is bigger, and I'm sure that he's going to look to them first. So what he's telling, I think, with you know, telling the GOP in general is, if I can get a deal that I can live with, I will go with anyone's vote. And I think he's kind of telling the Freedom Caucus, you guys can kick and moan and carp and complain, but you're not in the majority. And if I could get a deal with Nancy and the Tuesday morning group, I'll take it. What are you going to do? Again, I think it's you get to, now you have to govern. And it puts it back onto Congress. I mean, I would give Trump this. I think he's, unlike many other presidents, he does have a grasp of, well, this is what I do. This is what you do. You make law. Please, go about making law. So I I don't really see this, you know, he's not that detail-oriented or he... He listens to the last person, you know, it's what he said about, I think, one of the czars. You know, he takes the shape of the last person that sat on him. I don't think so. Okay. So, so, so I mean, a common narrative on the left, and you, you've sort of hit on this, is that President Trump is this uh, emotionally, uh, emotionally immature, extraordinarily emotionally immature, out of his depth, uh, you know, attention span of a six-year-old type of person. And, and it sounds to me like what you're saying is that that's what the left wants to believe and what the Republican elite, some of them might want to believe. But actually, he's a far cannier operator than most people are giving him credit for, at least in the mainstream media. I would say so, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, you mentioned uh, the first time again, the split in the Republican Party between Wall Street and Main Street, right? Basically kind of suggesting that Donald Trump was at least in part the result of the Wall Street Republican elite saying, trust me too many times and, and continually failing to deliver on that, trust me. And, you know, but based on a lot of analyses of his public statements, I, I President Trump just flat out lies to an extent I don't think we've ever seen before. And, and, you know, certainly President Trump or sorry, President Obama lied. 
as did President Clinton and, you know, and so on and so on. You know, uh, this is a bipartisan thing, but not to this extent. And so I'm wondering if you think President Trump's, I, the most charitable way I'll put it is casual attitude toward facts is at least in, as in the long term, destructive of public trust. Hmm. Well, I mean, by the way, uh, I kind of agree with one of your lead-ins about they fail to deliver, but I would argue that in many event, many cases that the GOP leadership has tried to deliver uh, on its promises to Wall Street. Okay, sure, yeah, absolutely. And they've done a good job of that, no those, question. Those accursed deplorables at home have stopped our, our efforts at comprehensive immigration reform so we can have more natural Republicans. So I would say, yeah, they failed, but I don't think it's a fact. I think that they have failed their donors. They, they, they've talked about to the, to the voters what they were going to do, but I think it's becoming clear that at least a large segment of them really never intended to give the voters what they promised. So that's not a failure if you don't do what you never intended. No, absolutely. And yeah, that's another issue that you and I, I think, uh, are pretty, in pretty strong agreement on, definitely. Uh, but I thought, you know, as to the lying, uh, um, I'm just say that's another provocative lead-in, and I like it. And I know it's not on to you, but you know, I noticed that lead-in's a little sparse on the facts on lies. And so I just thought, I'd, uh, as Samuel L. Jackson used to say, "Let me rebut." Would you say that the lies are on the scale of the vast right-wing conspiracy against my husband, or I was named after Sir Edmund Hillary, or I dodged sniper fire in Tuzla? Or the violence in Benghazi was caused by a video, a video by which way we, we scapegoated and imprisoned an American citizen. Or, and this is the one I like the best, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, which retroactively became the lie of the year. Or the Russians hacked the election, or the Hillary campaign had no connection to the Russian dossier. And then, of course, that scurrilous right-wing rag, the New York Times, bleeded out the campaign lied to us sanctimoniously. So my kind of question is, I'm a bit lost on the Trump lies, but please compare them in scope, scale, and number and effect to the above short list. Okay. So, so, so you're saying that it's not, it's uh, that sort of fact checking sort of approach where you just, you just check, you know, whatever the facts are against what a candidate said, that doesn't take into account the magnitude of what's being said. And I think that's, you know, that's certainly a, a reasonable, a reasonable point there. But so you'll, I take it you will, uh, I don't know if it's admit would be the right word that might be kind of provocative to you, but you, you will, uh, you'll say that all candidates lie and you're more concerned with the, the scope of the I would dispute your premise that there's a lot of lying from the Trump camp, but if there is a lot of lying, it pales in comparison to the last uh, eight years. Okay. And so would you say, though, that all of that casual attitude toward the truth, uh, whether it's from President Trump or whether it's from President Obama, uh, are, are in the long term destructive of public trust? I mean, are you concerned about it just in general or do you think it's not really that Again, big of a deal? I'd, I'd say you have to look at the effect, which is, I don't know, which is worse. Uh, uh, one of the putative lies that you're going to pull out from Trump about, say, DACA or any number of other policy prescriptions, or you can keep, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. I'm going to tell you that at the end of the day, probably some form of, oh, I will say this, 
it is possible that some form of DREAM Act will emerge. If it doesn't, it will probably be because the ever-so-clever Republican leadership found a way to anger everybody with their secrecy and condescension, and it falls apart. But in, say, 19, there will be a DREAM Act, and I think there will be a replacement for Obamacare. So when people say, well, Trump said this, but now it seems like we're going that way, it's like, in the end, I think we are going to get a DREAM Act. You can... You can take your opinion on that, and you know, that depends where you stand on that issue. And I think we will see things in the future. As compared to if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Well, I guess that flat-out lie suggests to me that, I guess the difference, is, the difference between what actually happens to me and what a politician said. And so far, I would say Trump has done a lot more of what he said he was going to do and that Barack Obama and, now I'd have to say Hillary Clinton, would have failed and, and, and been revealed as merely empty rhetoric. So, yeah, I think Barack Obama's you can keep your plan hurts the public trust a heck of a lot more than, you know, well, there seems to be conflicting views about what the DREAM Act should include. Okay. Um, you know, let, looking back now at the last, whatever, um, nine months, I guess, of, President Trump's presidency. What would you say uh, were the have been the biggest, you know, maybe couple three most important accomplishments uh, of President Trump that he's directly responsible for? Well, I have four. Okay. Gorsuch. Sure, absolutely. I can uh, see that. Regulation, uh, regulation repeal. I would like to see regulation reform, but you know that's what that's for the future. If you're talking today. So I said, the Dear Colleague letter, uh, CPP, uh, DACA, uh, insurance subsidies, uh, Iran, uh, there's been a movement on the, uh, I can't remember, the, the Consumer Protection Crew. I mean, a lot of Obama's legacy was EOs and regulation, and they're being overturned. So I'd, regulation repeal. Thirdly, um, I like it that he's removing the mask from the GOP in Congress and in, in the conservative intelligentsia. Now, it's allowing the, choice, the public to make a choice between George, Will, and Hal, and Corker, and a different sort of party. And then, fourthly, it, he's making all the right people cry inconsolably. Okay, to be honest, it may not be the most important. But it's been the most satisfying to me. Sure, you put it forth. So okay, <laughs> fine. Oh, and let's let's flip this around. I mean, no presidency is perfect without flaw. And so, what what things? Maybe what are your your disappointments or things you would you would have liked to have seen happen? Again, things that are attributable to President Trump and not the the GOP Congress, which obviously you have your issues with. Um, I would have fired Koskonen at IRS. Uh, and I think the guy, whether it's the CPFAB or whatever its acronym is, they probably should have been gone. Um, I'm not going to, you know, a lot of people on my side are screaming at Jeff Sessions because he hasn't indicted Hillary or he hasn't indicted that person. And, you know, you can make a case for or against. But to me, those are the two big failures that I would list as a list there. So, yep. So, nope. Not tired of all the winning yet. Okay, so in other words, the two failures, not not firing the uh, head of the IRS and not firing the head of my 
personally favorite the government regulatory agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, uh, yeah, well, yeah. A, I think Koskinen should have gone. I mean, he covered for Lerner. Uh, Lerner should have been gone. But, but part of that is on Congress. They could have acted, but oh, they didn't want to seem mean. Right. Okay. And and I should point out to, to listeners that uh, not too long ago, actually, the Department of Justice settled with uh, a number of these uh, Tea Party groups over over the issues that that uh, led to the firing of Lois Lerner and so forth. So uh, there was there was some resolution, but a lot of people feel that uh, a lot more should be done. And I know that you're certainly one of those people, Joe. Um, I have one final question for you. In in October. 2016, you were, in my view, delusionally confident that Donald Trump had a legitimate shot at winning the presidential election. And as it turned out, of course, you were right. And so I'm going to ask you to prognosticate again. Uh, Do you think Donald Trump will serve out his entire term? And if he does, do you expect him to run again, win the nomination and be reelected? Well, you know, first off, let me just say that there is a reason I don't bet and I don't play poker because I stink at, you know, prognosticating. Well, you got a big uh, one right in so, 2016. Okay, so, so you know. I, I haven't gotten a guy from, from the primary to the White House uh, since 1984, except for Trump. So there we go. Uh, but let me say that. This is another beautiful setup by the net. So your question is, will he serve out his term? And I'm going to tell you here and now, of course not. Let's review his history. Everyone knows he's not going to run. Everyone knows he's going to get bored and quit in a few weeks. He will never get any traction. Oh, he's dead again after me again, Kelly, and that bleeding remark. Well, okay, he can't win outside the Northeast, and he certainly cannot win South Carolina. Uh, he can't support, secure the support of evangelicals. He's done for after the McCain kerfuffle. Oh, can't secure 1327 delegates. It's going to be a broker convention. The convention will select someone other than Trump. Trump won't be selecting the Veep, or he will be the Veep candidate. He can't win the general. Look at the polling. He's dead after the grab them by the, holy for holy, he's won. So, you know, let me just end up by saying, you know, if the resistance and the never Trumpers keep telling yourselves these fairy tales, it makes his reelection easier. And to quote Hartman, it makes your tears of unfathomable sadness even more yummy. You know, and I don't know. I think he's going to serve out as to 2020. I don't know. But, I mean, if things stay as they are right now, Mike, who is going to beat him? Bernie? Bernie? Oh, yeah. Her for the third time? Oh, Mark Kuban beats him in the primaries. Oh, 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 oh wait. Kasich. Kasich, Kickenlooper, provide the moderate third way, third way independent campaign we've all been dying for. I'll tell you what's more likely. Trump picks up supporters in 2018, acts, enacts more legislation. In 2020, Mark Kugman gets as many delegates as please clap low-energy Jeb. Kasich, Kickenlooper get all the votes of Will, Crystal, and the like, which is to say about none. And he also gets one more uh, Supreme Court appointee. And our biggest complaint as, uh, as Trumpanzees will be what we said about Reagan post-84. Ah, there was so much more he, that could have been done. We blame Jared and Ivanka. Oh, and in 2024, every GOP candidate runs as the heir to Donald Trump, to include Jeb's son. Huh. 
Okay. Now, I, want, I, I just want to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. A couple of times you mentioned 2019 and things you expected. It sounds like that you are expecting in 2018 that the Republicans might actually pick up some numbers in the House and the Senate. Is that it? Am I, am I hearing that right? I don't know about in the House, but in the Senate, oh, yeah. Now, let's, I know that you and Jay are smart guys, and I know that you all don't look at the tweet fight. So I assume that this is another provocative lead-in. Okay, for all your progressive listeners who are reading about Trump and Corker and Trump and whoever and Trump and Frederica Wilson, get a, just grasp this. Who won the Trump-Corker-Trump flake fight? Well, I'd argue Trump because they're not coming back. And who's going to come in? Well, I think people are going to be more amenable to Trump. But more importantly... I believe 18 of 25 uh, Democratic senators that are up for re-election this year are in states that Trump carried. Now, if we replace just what? If we were to win two-thirds of those 18, that's 12 more senators in the R camp. Now, I know this is going to come as a great surprise to all your social justice warrior you know, uh, listeners, but look at those numbers. And then ask yourself, and people say, well, Trump's only at 41 or 46% approval. We're not going to go into this long involved, well, if you smear it out over eight years, really, he's no less unpopular than, here's the name of the game. You know the old, the old uh, uh, story about you, your friend, and the bear? I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun sure, you. Right. Why isn't, why isn't Flake or Corker coming back? Because they're dreadfully unpopular at home. Who's unpopular at home? Congress. Who is probably even more unpopular at home? Probably those Democratic senators. Trump doesn't have to be popular. He just has to be more popular than he in the alternative. And that's one of the reasons he won. We didn't think he was a light bringer. We didn't think he was an enlightened being who could lift us to new planes of thought and of being. He was better than Jeb. He was better than Walker. He was better than Rubio. He was better than Cruz. He was better than she was. Better than. So, yeah, I expect to see us pick up Senate seats. The House, I don't know. All right. Well, uh, with that, uh, we will, with those predictions, we will close. Uh, thanks, Joe, so much for taking the time to come back on the show and talk with me today. My pleasure, and I hope I've made some of your listeners weep bitter tears. <laughs> I'm sure you. I'm sure you have. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is a really big help to us, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you'd like to support the show without spending anything, it really does help if you get the word out by sharing this episode with your friends and followers or passing along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does really help. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com or through our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.